Upon a plain street in the quiet little town of Langport, in the midst of Somersetshire, there stands a plain but broad and homelike house, with its threshold upon the very footway of the street. And here, in an upper room, Walter Badgett was born on the 3rd of February, 1826. Now this introduction could be the beginning to just about any story imaginable. A murder mystery novel, a sappy romance, or a documentary. The character Walter Badgett could have invented the paperclip, been the backup guitarist to an 80s punk rock band, or maybe a misunderstood famous pastry chef. However, this is not a series about office supplies, music, or food. No, this is a podcast about the most important power of the most important institutions in the world. I speak of the lender of last resort power of central banks. And Walter Badgett is the principal character of any good story about the modern central bank. Welcome to the Bankster Podcast from centralverse.org. This is season three, Last Resort. I'm your host, Alexander Badgett. And today, episode one, The Central Banker's Bible. But before we get back to the life of Walter Badgett in the mid-1800s, as so eloquently narrated, by the way, by his biggest fan, President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, first, let's scratch back a few hundred years to speed through the evolution of central banking's first 200 years of history, before Badgett's birth in the upper room of the broad house on the Plain Street in the quiet town of Langport. It's important to note that to tell the full story, we would need to go way, way back. As the opening line in the Wikipedia entry for central banking begins, The use of money predates history. We're not going to go quite that far back. We'll begin the story with what's often called the forerunner of central banks, the Amsterdam Whistlebank. In the 17th century, not for nothing called the Golden Age, scale increase takes place. The growth has a lot to do with the foundation of the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, for a long time, the largest company in the world. The VOC has a monopoly on trade and shipping to Asia. And at its foundation in 1602, it comes with a world's first. To spread the financial risk, it issues shares to the public. The Wisselbank, a municipal exchange bank, is set up where traders can open accounts, making it a lot easier to process the trading transactions. On the waterfront of the beautiful and bustling 17th century city of Amsterdam, and with the advent of public stock in the largest company in the world at the time, the inklings of a central bank are born. If the Whistlebank is the first seed of a central bank, or the first seed planted in the central banking garden, then the Riksbanken is the garden's first sapling. Riksbanken, Sveriges centralbank. The Central Bank of Sweden is called the Riksbanken, and as their beautiful introductory video claims, they are the world's oldest central bank. They'd also like to point out that their central bank existed before the steam engine, the railway, internet or grill chips. Chris being Swedish for potato chips. In the 1650s, King Charles X Gustav of Sweden invaded the neighboring Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, 
The war was funded in large part by a wealthy merchant by the name of Johann Palmstruck. To increase the financing power of the merchant, the king granted Palmstruck the right to create a bank, Stockholm's Banco. The bank became quite the convenience to local and international merchants, who could deposit their heavy metal plates in exchange for certificates of deposit, pieces of paper indicating how much they had deposited at the new bank. These notes became very popular, and before long, people became concerned that the value of the certificates of deposit, those little pieces of paper, that they didn't match what was in the Stockholm's Banco, and they began to take out their big metal plates in mass. Close advisors to the king were forced to shut down the bank, but through the bank, the rich had been given a taste of the conveniences of a bank. So in 1668, a new bank was formed. It is from this new Riksens bank that the modern Riksbanken traces its origin. This time, the bank was created with a strong, independent board of management outside the direct control of the king. From the start, one of the tasks of the Riksbank was to issue money, the sole coin of the Swedish realm it would be. Unfortunately, over the next few generations of monarchs, the Riksbanken was placed in deeper and deeper state control. King Charles X's son, Charles XI, took control of the bank away from the independent management. There's an old movie depicting what happened when his grandson, King Charles XII, comes to power. The film shows a worm-tongue-like character whispering into the ear of King Charles XII. Has not the Riksbank any amount of idle capital? What is it you're saying? asked King Charles XII. There are millions untouched in the vaults of the bank, rusting away. The king did just that. He overborrowed from the Riksbanken, which was fine as long as his army was successfully expanding the empire. However, in 1709, he was over in the Ukraine with his army, where he suffered a disastrous defeat. It took a few months for news of the catastrophe to reach Stockholm. But when it did people were terrified of losing their savings. They rushed to the bank to take their money out. Very soon, the bank was empty and closed its hatches, freezing the remaining accounts. Those accounts remained frozen for decades. And that blow was devastating, but not completely destructive. With time, the Riksbanken was successful in establishing a foothold as the nation's central bank helping Sweden weather the crises of the next few centuries. Now, we're going to leave the Riksbanken on the European mainland and cross the English Channel to the Bank of England. Not unlike the origin story of the Riksbanken, the Bank of England began as a private bank with the unique role and advantage of serving as the bank to the national government. Also not unlike the handful of central banks before it, and many central banks after, it was founded with the primary purpose of helping the government fund its war efforts. In England's case, the War of the Grand Alliance against France. However, with, quote, just 17 clerks and two gatekeepers, the bank officially opened to promote the public good and benefit of the people, close quote. The bank quickly grew in size and importance. In 1725, they began issuing printed notes, what we would recognize as money today. 
As one of the Bank of England's cartoon history videos explains, The Bank of England has been issuing banknotes for over 300 years. They were initially IOUs for gold deposited at the bank. People then used these notes to pay for things, knowing they were backed by the promise to pay the equivalent value in gold. In the next hundred years leading up to the birth of Walter Badgett, the Bank of England funded a number of wars, weathered financial panics, built a beautiful headquarters in downtown London, and was nicknamed the Old Lady on Threadmiddle Street. Still relatively young at this time, central banks were coming into their own. They had gone from seeds to saplings and could now remove the support sticks that kept them from blowing over in the wind. It is in this time, near the end of his life, that Walter Badgett wrote what would become the Bible of central banking. The son of middle-class merchants, Badgett was described by a college classmate as a lanky youth, rather thin and long in the legs, with a countenance of remarkable vivacity, and characterized by the large eyes that were always noticeable. Close quote. After university, Badgett found himself in Paris. It was 1851, and Louis Napoleon, nephew of the infamous Napoleon Bonaparte, having failed to secure re-election, declared himself emperor of France. Badgett wrote a few articles in an English journal in favor of Napoleon that stirred quite the controversy back home. While working on these articles, he found a love for writing. Not long into his time in France, Badgett accepted a position back in England at his uncle's bank, one of the largest in the empire. While employed at the bank, he continued to write about philosophy, politics, and economics. A number of his economic essays caught the eye of the then financial secretary to the government treasury, one James Wilson. Along with his duties as financial secretary, Wilson was the recent founder of a newspaper called The Economist. He invited Badgett to write a series of essays for The Economist. Badgett readily accepted and found substantial audience for his thoughts in the magazine's readership. A few years later, in 1859, Wilson resigned as financial secretary and took the position of finance member for the Council of India and moved out of London. He left Badgett and another fellow joint directors of The Economist until he returned. But, unfortunately, Wilson never made it back. He died from dysentery contracted during a hot summer shortly after arriving in India. Within a year, Badgett would take full charge of The Economist, work as its chief editor, and write a weekly headline article. To take the helm of the magazine, he moved into London, leaving behind the small town in southwestern England where he had managed his uncle's bank. Living in London and constantly analyzing and writing about the financial and political climate of the international city put Badgett in a unique position to view the inner workings and connectedness of the economy. From this vantage point, he began work on a tract about the amount of reserves held by the Bank of England. The composition of this little book has occupied a much longer time than, perhaps, my readers may think its length or its importance deserves. Those were the opening lines of the book that the tract became. Little did Badgett know at the time, but this book would seal his position in the annals of central banking history, myth and lore. It would become, as U.S. Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner put it, The Bible of Central Banking. The book was called his 1873 book, Lombard Street, named for a narrow, single-lane alley of a street in the heart of London. Badgett himself introduced it this way. 
The briefest and truest way of describing Lombard Street is to say that it is by far the greatest combination of economical power and economical delicacy that the world has ever seen. Lombard Street was, and to a large extent still is, the famous financial street of London, a la Wall Street in New York, LaSalle in Chicago, or Marinucci in Tokyo. The book and its ideas are cited as, quote, the seminal text on crisis fighting, quote, the fount of all wisdom, and, quote, the essential principles, close quote. So what does Lombard Street say about financial crisis fighting? The summary, sometimes referred to as Badgett's Rule, goes something like this. At a time of panic, the central bank should, one, lend freely, two, against good collateral, and three, at a penalty rate. Yep, that simple. Here is Ben Bernanke, chair of the Federal Reserve during the global financial crisis of 2007, 8, and 9, expounding on Badgett's rule, which he refers to as Badgett's dictum. In fact, a very key uh, person in the intellectual development here was a a journalist um, named Walter Badgett, uh, who thought a lot about uh, banking, uh, central banking policy. And he had a dictum which said that during a panic, central banks should lend freely. Whoever comes to your door, as long as they have collateral, give them money. This This is during a banking panic against good assets to make sure that you get your money back, you need to have collateral, and that collateral has to be good, or it has to be discounted. You may lend half the value of the collateral, for example, and charge a penalty interest rate so that people don't just take advantage of the situation, but rather they signal that they really need the money because they're willing to pay a slightly higher interest rate. So again, uh, if you follow Badgett's rule, you can uh, stop financial panics. Panics are scary things. The sentiment and emotions that rule a bank run are immortalized in the classic movie It's a Wonderful Life. A taxi driver turns back to Jimmy Stewart's character, George, and says... Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. When George gets back to the bank, he tries to calm the panicked townspeople who have literally ran to his bank to pull out all of their money. No, but you're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house and Mrs. Maitland's house and, and a hundred others. You're lending them the money to build and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? This movie was made 70 years ago and is set more than 90 years ago. But the emotions and the sentiments of the panic described there haven't changed. During panics, people make rational decisions as individuals. If a bank is going to fail, you want to be first in line to get your cash out because you won't get anything if you're at the back of the line. But these rational decisions as individuals are not rational as a whole for society. To the contrary, they're quite detrimental. The role of the central bank is to restore trust in the financial system when panics begin. Because when the financial system collapses, the broader economy normally tumbles down with it. Badgett's rule serves, as was previously mentioned, as the essential guideline for how central banks go about preventing complete economic collapses. 
lend freely, against good collateral, at a penalty rate. It is epitomized in the phrase, lender of last resort. When panics are beginning, individuals, banks, and financial institutions, they stop lending to each other. Loans are the lifeblood of the economy. When everyone stops lending, per Badgett's rule, the central bank is supposed to open their books and lend. In Lombard Street, Badgett described this lender of last resort role of central banks as... They must lend to merchants, to minor bankers, to this man and that man, whenever the security is good. In wild periods of alarm, one failure makes many. And the best way to prevent the derivative failures is to arrest the primary failure which causes them. The against good collateral part is supposed to protect the central bank in case the loan goes bad. If the institution borrowing money from the central bank collapses... The central bank gets to keep the collateral, just like if you stop paying your mortgage, the bank can take your house. The at-a-penalty-rate serves two purposes. Number one, to make sure they only come to the central bank if there are no other options, and two, to get banks back to the markets as soon as possible. Nearly 150 years later, and central banks are still built on this principle of lender of last resort. We're pricing the ECB as a lender of last resort. As lender of last resort for indebted members. Let me start by saying that the role of lender of last resort is a critical responsibility that central banks um, fulfill around the world. And it's why the- now, there is one crucial footnote I'd like to draw your attention to. Peter Conti Brown, Fed historian and legal scholar, has described Badgett's Lombard Street as, quote, a classic in the sense of the word often attributed to Mark Twain, a book everyone cites but no one reads, close quote. In the show notes to today's episodes, I will link to three articles from Peter Conti Brown that outline his critiques of the modern interpretation of Lombard Street. I'll also include an excellent and very readable 1999 academic paper by the British economist Charles Goodhart called Myths About the Lender of Last Resort. However, with that footnote in mind, the power of any sacred text isn't derived from the literal words or the historicity of the context. No, the power comes from people's belief in the words. As Secretary Geithner put it, Chairman Bernanke believed in Badgett, and he believed that central bankers who failed to act in a crisis could make it exponentially worse. Today, we covered the early central banks in Amsterdam, Sweden, and England. We introduced the godfather of modern central banking, Walter Badgett, his seminal book, Lombard Street, and how that book's principles became the golden rule for the lender of last resort. For the rest of this season, we will observe how the lender of last resort principle has been used by central bankers ever since. The podcast will largely be US-centric, Because one, that's what I know, and two, it's inarguably, with responsibilities for the U.S. dollar, the global reserve currency, the most important central bank today. Central banks are involved in all sorts of economic activity. They write regulations about what banks can and cannot do. They send examiners to institutions large and small to make sure they're following those rules. Central banks serve as the bank of their national government. 
and they are heavily involved in how we as consumers and businesses send each other money. They have a lot of responsibilities. But this podcast is about their role as lenders of last resort. On the next episode, we'll flash forward 20 years and make the jump across the Atlantic Ocean to a financial panic that started in New York City. At the time, the U.S. didn't have a central bank. But when the panic began to spread, someone stepped into the role of lender of last resort. That story and the economic policy revolution that followed next time. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Alexander Badgett. The theme song is Land of the Retro Ones by Rage. Voice acting for President Wilson and Walter Badgett by Joshi Nygaard. A full transcript with links to all of the sources used and quoted in today's episode can be found at www.centralverse.org. While you're there, check out the interactive graphics describing how modern central banks work today. Find me on Twitter, at Caleb Nygaard. Central banks affect the daily lives of all of us. Rate the podcast and share it with your coworkers, classmates, family, and friends. Until next time, thanks for listening.